I had too much coffee this Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudi Mitzpahs22.com podcasts and YouTube videos. Uh, I just uh, posted one this morning with uh, Kale Zeldin and I. Uh, another one coming out soon with Father Harrison Eyre, the Canadian priest extraordinaire, uh, where we're talking the theology of Joseph Ratzinger. But today, finally, I'm, I'm actually talking to two fellow Catholic workers. Uh, I'm one that you've seen before, Benjamin uh, Peters. Uh, who I interviewed like a month or so ago. He teaches at the University of St. Joseph, Joseph uh, up in uh, was Massachusetts. What? Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, Connecticut. Okay. And then uh, the one and only Michael Baxter, uh, who teaches at Regis University in religious studies. And Michael was for many years at Notre Dame in Indiana as well and started a Catholic worker house there. And so the, I'm talking to gentlemen with, you know, with strong Catholic worker bona fides. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, uh, I, I want what I want to talk about today, among other things, we'll get to talking about the Catholic worker movement, perhaps in, in more general categories as we go along. But I wanted to begin with a discussion of John Courtney Murray and the, the theologian, the Catholic theologian, John Courtney Murray. Uh, and and the, my broader concern with Murray is to really bring in here a discussion of the relationship between Catholic theology and social theory, uh, which, and to set this up, the fact is bef before the Second Vatican Council, I, I was reading the other day the memoirs of Joseph Pieper, and one of the things that struck me was Pieper was talking about when he came to the United States, he was shocked to find out that Catholic universities and colleges did not have theology departments. Theology was almost exclusively to be found in seminaries. That instead, what you had in Catholic colleges and universities were philosophy departments dominated by the neo-scholastic Thomas types. And in their view, the, the, the theology and social theory had very little to do with one another. And that the, the Catholic engagement with social theory was large and therefore political theory was going to be largely within these very hackneyed categories of neo-scholastic natural law thinking. And along those lines, there was like this nature grace. I don't want to get too caricatured here, but a nature grace bifurcation uh, in which really the gospel has very little to say directly to the political domain, to the social domain. That's the provenance of philosophy and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so that really shocked people anyway, that there was the philosophy was there, but but not theology. And, and so it does strike me that in the Catholic, one of the things that Dorothy Day and Peter Moore and what they were on about was that we need to bring specifically theological categories into our social thinking. Uh, that brings me to John Courtney Murray, who, in my opinion, was the champion uh, in, in modern in 20th century Catholic thought of a line of thinking that said we can we can basically get on and mainstream ourselves as Catholics into American culture by simply appealing to natural law theory. And I, it seems to me that he was simply continuing this trend of a bifurcation between theology and social theory. Uh, and, and a lot of neocon Catholics have picked up on this and are very big. Now, I I said this in a couple of articles, and I'm going to turn it over to these guys real quick here. But I said this in a couple of articles, and Joseph Kamanchak, the great 
you know, he's like, I think about 88 years old now, but, you know, people know who he is, expert on Vatican II and that era of Catholicism. He let me know on no uncertain terms that I was completely full of it when it came to John Courtney Murray. The Murray was this great and complex theologian, and he was. All right. So, okay, I'm going to I'm going to start with you, Mike Baxter. What do you think of my thumbnail sketch of (laughs) of the 20th century and John Courtney Murray? So I'm going to turn it over to you. I think you stole it from all my writings, Larry. That's what I think. No, only kidding. Uh, it could no, very well be because I it, I've read a lot of your stuff. I I I think that um, first I want to say thanks for talking to us. Um, ben Peters and I have talked about these matters a great deal, and so have a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, and um, uh. John Courtney Murray is someone who always comes up in my thinking in in, in the context of what you said, basically as someone who enabled Catholics to make sense of what was happening in their lives, you could say, as a community, um, and to make sense of how Catholicism was finding its place in America, a process which really occurred over the course of a century or more still happening in some ways. And uh, Murray gave an intellectual account of why this could be, in particular by untying the knots around the traditional Catholic political theory on the relation between church and state. And more broadly, by being a kind of spokesperson for intelligent Catholics in the years before and during the Second Vatican Council. Because uh, he was a hero to his generation of Catholics. Um, and he is, as Joe Komanchek said, a very complicated figure. I've come to be more sympathetic to him over the years. Um, and uh, nevertheless, I am critical of John Courtney Murray, especially when you set him against the the witness and the work of someone like Dorothy Day. Yeah. Um, and in my interest in John Courtney Murray um, crystallized when I got involved in the Catholic Worker and decided that intellectually speaking, I wanted to um, give a, an intellectual or theological count account of the Catholic Worker. And um, and yet whenever I encountered people in the field of social ethics or more broadly in kind of mainstream Catholic thought in the say 1970s and 80s and 90s, they said that um, Dorothy Day was marginal, was a marginal figure. And they usually invoked the work of John Courtney Murray in making that argument. I came to see that these two figures um, are best understood in contrast to each other. And is are best understood as really embodying and articulating two different traditions of Catholic social thought in the United States. What I would call, on the one hand, regarding Murray, the Americanist tradition. And um, on the other hand, Dorothy Day and a, co- a smaller company of important theologians. Uh, articulating the radical tradition or radicalist. I don't know what to call it exactly. And um, when you look at those two people, those two traditions and figures in contrast, 
it starts to become clear that the problem is what you said, Larry, when you said that that the understanding of society and the understanding of politics and even economics is not theologically informed or charged or shaped. And the reason is because, you know, uh, intellectually speaking and institutionally speaking, um, theology, by and large, not entirely, but by and large, didn't function, didn't perform that role in a lot of institutional settings um, before the Second Vatican Council. So it is true. There were there were not very many theology departments. Notre Dame's was started, I think it was, in 1964. Yeah. Um, but people learned religion, but they learned it through basically catechetical type classes. Um, there were a couple of exceptions. Portier could tell us more about those, Catholic U being one of them. But by and large, um, philosophy was carrying the water when it came to how to think about society. Um, and they came up with a kind of a philosophy which was natural law based and which brought forth the writings of Aristotle and Aquinas to engage modern thinkers. But as I discovered in my research, especially going back a generation before Murray, showing how Aristotle and Aquinas supported the kind of political arrangement that had been established in the United States at the time of the founding. Um, and Murray fits into that assumption and into the tradition that articulated that assumption. Uh, yeah. So it turns out in my research that uh, the issue regarding Murray goes back well before Murray, not. Yeah, there was always am am among certain types, the idea that since the Anglo enlightenment uh, and, and the American revolution differed from the uh, Francophile uh, enlightenment, that one could discern a different intellectual genealogy among the descendants of, of, the, of the British. And that if one looks at the British Enlightenment, the Anglo Enlightenment, you, it had roots in, in English common law. And English common law had its roots in medieval uh, political philosophy. Therefore, America is a crypto Catholic country <clears throat> in, in, its, in its essential, which is why. We can treat the Constitutional Bill of Rights, especially the First Amendment, as articles of peace rather than articles of faith, because they're articulating they're articulating a fundamental natural law relationship between these differing spheres that we could that Aquinas was already on about, right? Yeah, that that was the idea. Murray put it. Murray is the best. The way I look at Murray is the best articulator of this ultimately ill-conceived tradition mistaken tradition yeah um, but and murray is the is the most articulate and forceful writer cogent writer of 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 this as well and he says that um tom he refers to thomas aquinas uh, as the first wig something that lord acton said before him and so he was picking up on this long tradition that aligned catholic social thought from Augustine, Aquinas, the Scholastics, Aristotle, um, uh, with um, 
uh, a certain strand and a certain interpretation of the Constitution and and the yeah. American founders. Yeah. I think too, you know, and 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 I I'm kind of sheepish even to talk about Murray because most of what I know about Murray I learned from Mike and Bill and 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 even some of your stuff. Larry, Bill Portier, but, you mean Bill Portier? Bill, yes. Bill Portier, yeah, but but one of the things that I I I think that this argument also does, and, and where kind of I've seen Murray's power in this is that it then means that anybody who is critical of of the Constitution or critical of the United States or any political or economic or war making institutions in the United States, then then is seen as somehow not just rejecting the state, but that there's some broader, deeper theological reason, right? Mur Murray paints this sort of du dualism between an incarnational humanism and an eschatological humanism, right? And, and it's and it's the incarnational humanism, at least in Murray's mind, he gets these terms from Europe, and I think he kind of misreads them a little bit, but but um, but sort of it's the incarnational hu humanism that then embraces things like the American institutions that, that we're kind of talking about here, that he's making this argument, where it's the eschatological humanism that he sort of sees as that's with withdrawing and that sees it all as sinful. And there's no, you know, what, what we were talking about last time, the kind of three tiered sin nature and then grace, he kind of collapses the two and says, either you're going to embrace the, you know, this, this American project, like you're kind of saying in the argument, or you're this eschatological, you know, which very quickly turns into kind of a, a church sect in Trouch's thing and, and it becomes sectarian. And so it so kind of gives people a way of rejecting arguments that Dorothy Day is making or arguments that other folks within this radicalist tradition that Mike's talking about, any anybody who comes across as critical in, in some way is then Murray kind of gives theological ways of dismissing them, of saying, well, they're sectarian, well, they're they just want to withdraw. They think everything is sinful, or that at best it's just basket weaving. It's kind of a pointless exercise, and 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 I think that's that's the kind of flip side of this argument that I think you and Mike are painting here is that then it's used as sort of a way of beating down any critical voices um, of that argument and giving kind of theological theological um, energy to that. So, well, go ahead, Mike. Do I have to raise my hand? No, uh, you can just butt right in. No, here uh, to to put a little more uh, story behind this. Um, I ran into this at Notre Dame when I was a seminarian in the late seventies and early eighties because I got enamored with Dorothy Day through people that I had worked with, and um, you know started to consider getting arrested. And you know at this time the bishops were doping out their response to uh, nuclear weapons with the challenge of peace for those from 1980 yeah. to 83. Those are exactly the years I came back and did my theology at Notre Dame. And uh, I was taken with the with the life and the witness of Dorothy and many of her followers, some of whom uh, uh, were at Notre Dame. But when I would mention her uh, and uh, the kind of radical pacifist approach, I would hear from most Catholic thinkers, I think of Richard McBrien, Richard McCormick, all, the, all, all these thinkers at the time would say, well, that's sectarian. And what they were doing without, I, I don't think, fully knowing or acknowledging for sure 
what they were doing was appropriating a tradition that melded with Catholic social thought in the late 60s and early 70s that was drawn from liberal Protestantism. And that tradition was probably uh, most vividly represented by the Niebuhrs, Reinhold and yes. Richard Niebuhr. And they were the ones who transmitted Trelch into Catholic discourse with the kind of overbearing uh, distinction between church and sect. And then that was picked up by Jim Gustafson at the University of Chicago, who trained dozens of Catholic social ethicists uh, who are still some of the most prominent people today. So these Catholic social ethicists take this grid that had been um, appropriated by the Niebuhrs, and they would be able to take a position like Dorothy Day's and uh, pacifist, radical in that sense, and simply say, that's not Catholic, that's sectarian. And uh, the gist of this, as Bill Portier has pointed out, was to say, you don't have to listen to it if it's sectarian. If you can label it sectarian, it's not Catholic. The, the biggest, the most obvious person here is Richard McBride, who I had in class in the 80s. And I wrote a paper for him on Murray. Um, and he gave me an A. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't tell him what I really thought about Murray. I just reported on what Murray thought. Um, so... But and, and 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 it's not just folks kind of on on the on the left like McBride and McCormick. I mean, you 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 get the kind of sectarian dismissal of this from folks like Weigel and and you know the, the late Richard John Newhouse too. That that I so 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 I think this this way of viewing the critique and and this way of dismissing the critique and this use of Murray kind of more broadly kind of goes across what we would see as kind of the partisan di di divide within. A, a lot of Catholic theology today. I mean, here's one way to think about it. Peters and I are going to play ping pong from this point on here. Um, That's fine. I, no, this here, is the, my here, favorite kind of interview. Sit right back the, and watch it go. You, uh, here's the way to think about this. Murray helped Catholics intellectually in their process of making it or coming of age in America. That is entering the mainstream. And it was a process that you could say uh, clearly uh, accelerated at the time of World War I and the decades after and continued and accelerated even further after World War II. And then GI Bill, JFK. Exactly. So Catholics are moving up in the uh, social economic status and so on. And um, uh, right. Kennedy becomes elected, gets elected president and so on. And. Murray explained both to Catholics and to the American public that was skeptical that you could become fully Catholic and fully American. And there's a whole sociology, and Murray does the theoretical part of that sociology. What happens as Catholicism comes of age in America, this is how the historians write about it, um, is that at that same time, it splits into two camps so that in the 60s, Catholics themselves start dividing in ways that were, I think, I think it can be the case can be made unprecedented um, from about 1960 on um, with the 
with the um, uh, promulgation of Mater Magistra, the famous argument between the Jesuits in America and um, Gary Wills and uh, um, uh, William F. Buckley at National Review over whether or not they had to listen to the Pope. And uh, the conservatives said, we don't have to listen to it. We, Mater C. Magistra, magister, exactly. no. Exactly. That was, that was Buckley's Buckley. uh, editorial, yeah. but Gary Wills came up with the title. And um, uh, and then uh, as the 60s go on, Catholics continue to divide over the war, race relations, um, poverty, and uh, the rights of the working class, what they called at the time women's lib, and then uh, contraception, um, abortion, and then into the 80s, nuclear weapons, economic justice for all. And, and then into the 90s, Catholics end up dividing over these hot button issues. They still are divided today. What, what that process is, and I think it's crucial to re-narrate that process, not as a coming of age, but as a process by which Catholicism, the Catholic community in the United States, gets absorbed into U.S. political culture and therefore takes on these divisions that had yes. been um, uh, uh, already reigning in uh, U.S. political culture. And in the, on that score, they are like virtually every other religious denomination in the United States, which divided between liberal and conservative camps uh, in the wake of World War II. This is all laid out in a book by William, uh, by um, the, uh, Robert uh, Wuthnow called The Restructuring of American Religion. Yeah. And, um, uh, well, there's also that book by Will Herbert, Protestant Catholic Jew, mm -hmm. uh, that talks about what he says. He simply says they've all become the same thing insofar as they've all been absorbed into what he calls the American way of life. Okay. And that brings me to another point that I'm going to let you keep on, keep on going because it's easy for me. But uh, when you said, <clears throat> and you know, in the 50s, 60s about Catholics, Murray giving them a sort of a green light to mainstream into America, that's sort of question begging, right? Because what does it mean to be an American is, is a deeper question as if there's only one way to be an American, and that's defined for us in these conservative and little liberal political categories into which we get absorbed, ignoring the fact that maybe a Catholic, uh, you know, a, a deeply devout Catholic thinker has something unique to contribute to the question of what is an American uh, that that differs from those categories. But anyway, those are just my two cents. You know, it, it it is true. I think uh, one reason why we don't have as much creative thinking on that score, Larry, is because American Catholics of the liberal stripe and the conservative stripe have different views, roughly speaking, of what it means to be American and also rival views of what it means to be Catholic. <laughs> and they spend most of their energy critiquing each other. I always say that the liberals and the conservative Catholics are at their most cogent when they're critiquing the other side. And um, uh, yeah. so you don't get, uh, you know, alternative views that are uh, don't fit into these categories as well. You know, views like of people like, well, like of Dorothy, obviously American so many ways, 
but she was a reluctant and skeptical. And in many cases, she described herself as un-American um, in, in the sense of she didn't want to buy into the terms of war making and the Cold War and all this stuff. Or no. Walker Percy or these uh, Flannery O'Connor, all these other figures who don't fit well into the descriptions liberal and conservative and who happen to be Mer Merton would be another I would argue uh, but who happen to be um, some of the most interesting Catholics in our history uh, so it's really a part I think it's a good sign when a Catholic doesn't fit right. in what's going on in America and yeah and and, I'll yeah. Say, and and I think not just fit in terms of falling into the liberal or, or or conservative camp, but of thinking about the place of 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 Catholicism and kind of you know I, I think one one of the things that you get uh, Mike and I talk a lot about this this book by John uh, Murray Cudahy, uh, No Offense, where he talks about the instead of a instead of a civil religion a religion of of civility and that this is this way that you know kind of in the post-war consensus that we're talking about here, where Murray's working, where one of the key features is that any kind of religious fervor or religious enthusiasm, you, know, you got Ronald Knox's book, religious enthusiasm is is that's seen as 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 sort of uncouth. And that's not something that you know you're supposed to, I mean, you can kind of see where the privatization of 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 religion kind of comes in here, where you're really not supposed to bring your religious beliefs into political conversations. And and that fits nicely into Larry, what you were talking about—the kind of neo-scholastic, you know, keeping these things separate. And 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 so I think that that's the other kind of thing that we see happening here is that Catholics are kind of being absorbed in into this religion of civility, which is, you know, we're, we're all we're like we live in a pluralistic country. This is this is not is no longer kind of seen as a problem, but this is sort of seen as this is the way it's supposed to be, and. Part yeah. of what makes the civility work, part of the niceness, is these kind of enthusiasms need to get kind of stuck out into the side. It's 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 kind of the end of ideology art argument, which is also kind of in the in the works here and 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 yeah. well. But I and, and we hear it all happens to, to to Catholics at this time is that we begin to more and more privatize where people like Dorothy and Walker Percy and Merton aren't aren't in aren't conforming like that either. Yeah, absolutely. What what gets blunted in this discussion is, you know, when we're called sectarian or another word that we're often called are rigorists. You're a rigorist, right? Is is that it blunts the prophetic voice? One can draw a distinction between the incarnational and the eschatological, but unless one brings them back together into some kind of unity, you you end up with a non-eschatological incarnational way of thinking. That is utterly non-prophetic, has no inward critique of, of, of the outward culture. I get this every single time. I just wrote a blog post, posted it two <laughs> days ago, called The Falsification of the Good. Uh, it's based on uh, Alain Bazançon, the French historians thinking about these things. And, and in that, you know, I, I come to the end and say, what kind of a saint do we need today? And, of course, I, I lay out a, a, a fairly <clears throat> a sort of what they would consider a rigorous point of view with regard to the sanctity we need today. And to me, it's just prophetic. It's, it's, it's biting. It, 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 it has, it has, it has teeth. All right. And every, you should see my email, email box then fill up with all, oh, you're just a rigorous. Oh, you're a crypto Jansenist. Oh, all the same stuff that, 
Dorothy heard from the Hugh about the Hugo retreats. And we were talking about this, uh, Ben. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, it's a very, very simple and easy way for people to simply dismiss the, the prophetic edge. And I'll say this, and then I'll turn it back over to you guys. One of the one of the questions that has to be raised in this conversation in the midst of all this discussion of natural law is the fact that natural law arguments have failed. They don't win the day in our culture. They have not won the day in our culture. And I would argue that the reason why they haven't is because natural law theory presumes a robust faith in God, and it presumes a particular kind of God, you know, a creator God who has imbued his creation with the logoi spermatigoi of his rationality, and that we have the capacity to discern that, and that once we discern that, it's normative. Okay, and all of those things, they're they're a daisy chain of assumptions that 85% of our countrymen don't accept. Okay, and so we can argue to we're blue in the face in this neutral language of natural law theory, and it's not going to go anywhere. So I would argue that prophetic, specifically revelation-based theological language in a sort of Hawassian tonality, all right, is going to go a lot further in convincing the American public uh, than the natural law kind of language that's tossed out. Anyway, that's oh, just my two. This is good. We have something to disagree about. Finally, this is important, Larry. We need to disagree. No, I have uh, come to change my view on this uh, in part. It depends on what conception of natural law um, and how it how it figures into our, um, our overall intellectual view. Um, uh, and some natural law, I would well, I'd say, say con- some concepts of natural law are helpful. And I would even say, I would even go further and say, you really can't uh, like natural law is not primarily about winning arguments based on nature or reason. This is how Murray thought in you know in trying to win in the public sphere. You know, this is. I, I'm going to stop you one second. I'm not arguing the natural law arguments don't have a place. What I'm saying is they are not a substitute for specific faith-based language. That's that's what I'm I, saying. I agree. I I would agree with that. Um, and I would agree that Murray m- makes mistakes there by saying we have to keep to a public philosophy and not appeal to theological categories in public. He was being someone who want, who didn't want Catholicism to run against the grain of the American ethos and so on. On the other hand, um, what I what I would want to say is that in some sense, the natural light, this is what I do with my students. When I talk about natural law, I say, well, the primary precepts of the natural law are found in the Decalogue. And for example, thou shalt not steal. They said there's a lot of stealing going on in America, uh, in modern society. But then I'll walk up to a student's desk and take her water bottle and say hey thanks uh i really wanted i really like the color of this and i'm going to start drinking out of it and there's something in them the students that will say well that's not right that impulse yeah that that is the natural law at work in our even now, not entirely destroyed inclinations toward the good. And um, when a woman says, my baby kicked me when she's five months pregnant, 
and doesn't say my fetus kicked me in some way she is revealing the kind of ever presence of the natural law now i agree with you that the full understanding of this can be um only uh grasped in a theological framework but uh it is possible to use a natural law argument like that and i would argue to um to resist uh let's say the nationalism that and the capitalism and so on that that bothered someone like Dorothy Day. And the thinker I would point to on this score is Alistair McIntyre, who um uh who mm -hmm. uses natural law arguments to show that natural law is actually subversive of the modern state, is subversive of capitalist order and so on. And uh, that we can use natural law to resist um, the kind of nationalism that we're going to see on display in this most tumultuous election. Well, year. I, you know, I agree completely. I mean, I still taught TH. Um, it was Theology 109 at the sales. One of the my primary texts I used was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, the first half of which is essentially an argument from natural law to the moral law, to the existence of God. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and I, I see value and merit in, in all of that. I'm not here to disparage natural law arguments, but simply to point out that they presume a kind of fundamental faith in God, ultimately, in order for their arguments to have cogency. Because yes, people, as Lewis says, people can, can recognize the, what he calls the fundamental law of fair play, sort of schoolyard ethics. Hey, I gave you a piece of my orange yesterday. Now you give me a piece of your cookie today. Yes, we recognize that. But as you ascend the scale of moral complexity, then the issue precisely becomes, well, what constitutes fair play? What constitutes That's right. the yeah. lovely thing to do in these contexts? At which point I think we do, our natural law thinking is helped if it is more specifically informed by gospel categories. That, that's sort of my point. And, and so, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. And I'm no, not saying you're misunderstanding me, but I obviously wasn't clear that I'm not in a sense saying we can't use natural law arguments. I'm, what I'm arguing against is the sort of neocon misuse of those arguments as yeah, and a I would argue neutral, form of, neutral form of language. And therefore we don't need we don't need any of this other theological gobbledygook uh, that you're dragging in here. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I've even heard Weigel these days, um, well, 10 years ago anyway, uh, say that natural law arguments aren't, aren't working. I had a talk with George Weigel one time. And full in, disclosure, I talked to George a lot, and he's I consider him a friend. He's a great guy, and I consider him a friend. But anyway, go ahead. But he's, but he's wrong on a lot, and he's done a lot of uh, evil arguments. Um, but... Uh, Back in 1992, I said to him, <laughs> I went up to his office in the Ethics and Policy Center where they all had Colombian coffee and guys brought you the coffee and nice white, you know, button down shirts and ties. Um, and we got talking. Uh, and I, I always say I, I was in his office and I looked and you could see to, to the left was... Um, the Capitol and to the right was the Pentagon. You could see like helicopters going back and forth. And I, and I just imagine George Weigel waking, you know, coming to his office every morning, looking out and saying, how are we going to reform our culture today? And um, 
And he, he said, well, Baxter, you're down there with Hauerwas at Duke. Um, why don't uh, you're you're one of these enclave people, you know, yeah. McIntyre. Yeah. And, you know, he had, you know, I don't know if he had studied, but he had read After Virtue. I don't know if he studied it. Um, and that's a book that has to be studied. But he uh, uh, I, I responded to him by saying, well, look, you're you're. The, the agenda you have is uh, to reform American culture. But I have the fear that this agenda is like always renewable, that every so often you're going to come up with a new way to uh, reform the agenda. This was Murray's. This is what's Murray's argument. He was always saying to you, we have to keep working at it. My argument was that if we keep working at it, we'll be further co-opted into it. So I asked him. I said, um, what has to happen for you all, neocons, you know, you Murray people, to uh, to win the argument for American culture? This is 1992. Uh, and he said, um, moderate feminism has to win out over extreme feminism. Um, abortion. Uh, um gay marriage um i think he mentioned uh, uh uh stem cell research euthanasia and euthanasia as the five key issues and he's and he said we have to win these issues in the culture and then i said to him what's your time limit <laughs> like at what point do you have to say you know what we're not going to win this and he was hard pressed but i got him to admit that 2022 30 years from now we would have to be able to say maybe we should do what mcintyre says at the end of after virtue turn aside from the task of building up the imperium and start to construct local forms of intellectual yeah. and moral inquiry at the, you know, and friendship at the local level. And, um, you know, back then that seemed like a long ways away, but now I wanna say we haven't won and Catholics are never gonna win. And one of the reasons they're gonna, they're not gonna win is because they're fighting each other. And uh, there's an inverse mirror image of uh, Weigel in uh, people like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, the Steinfels, or yeah, we have to update our our people. But um, yeah, uh, John McGreevy, you know, all all these kind of great Catholic figures, the Commonwealth Catholics, and uh, they they too are ready. We're just ready to fight. They're always ready to. This is the struggle, and so they want to get this year. They're going to say we've got to win the election. Both sides will, and uh, meanwhile, it'll distract us from. Maybe the task that people like Dorothy Day were more interested in, which is uh, binding the wounds of the poor and so on, and reconstructing a new social order. Yeah, so I agree. Speaking, in, in, your, in your farm, Larry, in your farm out there. In our farm. In, and, in, and, and Ben, before you chime in, I'm going to cut you off right now. <laughs> Anybody, I'll let you, seriously, buddy, I'll let you talk in a second, but I, I just want to quickly throw in there 
that one of the things I noticed was not on Weigel's list was uh, that we need to win the issue of the industrial, the, the military industrial complex, America's constant eternal war footing uh, and, and war making. And that is an issue that I think um, the bishops of the United States, they attempted something important in the early 80s with the pastoral on nuclear disarmament. But I had a blog post once called uh, Eucharistic Incoherence, America's Nuclear Onanism. And uh, I mean, it didn't go very far. I tried to get it published in some of the more conservative venues in which I published, and it was rejected, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my I, so, yeah, in, in a sense, in, 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 you're talking about we're at each other's throats. And I was one of the people at Cardinal McElroy's throats for saying, you know, that we need to get rid of the idea that all sexual sins are inherently grave matter. And I said, well, blah, 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 blah. But then I thought more deeply about it. And I said to myself, well, you know, he's onto a certain truth. And the truth that he's onto is there's an asymmetry. And I think this is what he was trying to say. There is an asymmetry in our moral theology here. Yes. Yeah. So that a young man, and as I said in my blog post, a young man sitting at the bottom of a nuclear silo who's ready to turn that key and incinerate 10 million people with his Minuteman missile. And he's and he's a Catholic and he's morally ready to do that at a moment's notice. But he doesn't have to go to confession in order to receive the Eucharist. But if he went home that night, watched a little porn and succumbed to the onanistic temptation, then he supposedly has to go to confession. And uh, there is an enormous asymmetry there. Anyway, I'm sorry, Ben, I didn't give you a chance to talk. But anyway, go ahead, Michael, and then down to Ben, I promise you. We think about that out here in Colorado, because we got a lot of sexual sins um, condemned, but we have a lot of missile silos in eastern Colorado, too. And a lot of military installations that if the world does get blown up, it'll be in part because of the ones here in Colorado. Yeah. Go ahead, Peter. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say to, to, to think about this in, in, in terms of natural law, I, I think where, where Mike and I have talked a lot about this too, and other spots is I think this is where the, the kind of current de- de- debates over pacifism within Catholicism and the place of the just war theory and I think, Larry, you bringing that up about the missile silo is, is interesting because I think oftentimes there's there, there's this assumption that what the just war theory, and I think this is an assumption for both people who use the just war theory and also people who are pacifists who want to want to say the church should stop teaching the just war theory, is that the just war theory is simply allowing war to take place and simply propping up, you know, and, and, and I think, and I think one of the things that I've kind of started thinking more about and kind of maybe changed my thinking about is, is looking at the just war theory. So, you know, a, a, a natural law based argument as, as a means for arguing against what you're talking about. They're about existing in, yeah. in a missile silo pre- pre- prepared to end all human life as, as we know it within a half hour. Um, but then, then to kind of back up even more, Larry, when, when you were talking about that, that one of the problems with Murray's use of, of the natural law is it kind of pr- presumed this sociology of, of, of Catholicism that maybe maybe existed in the 50s as far as as far as how Catholics think about themselves, but no longer think about themselves now. And 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 I think I, I, I was thinking about that because Bill one, one of Bill Portier's lines was always that what we needed to do was re-theologize the natural law. And I wonder if that's something that we're kind of hitting here is that is that yeah. this is something that Murray didn't think that was necessary because he had this robust, what you know, what we call kind of like a 
thick Catholic culture all around him that he just sort of saw as nature, that that, that, that was just sort of presumed as always there, and that that's gone now. And I think Dorothy maybe was was already seeing it as maybe not as not 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 as robust as maybe someone like John Corey Murray um, did, and that that's something that 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 we're um, that we're hitting on with with one of the insufficient. So why why George Weigel keeps kind of punting the football is he has this kind of undying faith in yeah. the nation state because yeah. he has a kind of a he hasn't recognized that that thick or what what that that, that 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 sense of nature is insufficient, right? The way, the, that's something that I, I think exactly in these radicals would kind of say, and that's why we do need a re-theologized notion of natural law and a re-theologized notion of nature, right? That nature is insufficient and grace does perfect nature. It doesn't simply build on nature and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that requires a slightly more sophisticated metaphysical accounting of things. I remember one time I shared a, a limo ride somewhere to airport or something with George. And once again, sorry, George, if you're listening, uh, he is a friend and he's been very good to me. Uh, but at, at any rate, uh, George, I, I brought up the name of the late, great David L. Schindler on some topic. This was in an election year or something or other. And when Weigel said, oh, yes, uh, you know, Dave, I Dave, I like Dave. He's a friend, but he sits in there and there, you know, in his little metaphysical fog while the rest of us are out here fighting the fight, you know, and and I just sat back. I didn't say much back to George. I, I just thought to myself, that's such a bad way of framing the problem. Dave, right? Schindler, Dave Schindler is buried in, uh, in Cedar Grove Cemetery at Notre Dame, about 20 feet from my dear friends, Michael and Margaret Garvey, who introduced me to the Catholic worker. So I I feel like I st every time I go to Notre Dame, I'm teaching at Notre Dame this year. Uh, every time I. I go to Notre Dame. I um, I say hi to Dave as well as Michael. Yeah. And Mark. Um, Whenever I revisit my alma mater, seminary alma mater, Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, I always make sure I go and pray at the grave of Germain Grise. I'll tell uh, you, I'll give you a story about Germain Grise. This is a natural law story. Um, uh, um, and it, I called him because I wanted to find out from him. Uh, I was writing a piece in the sign of peace, an excellent little journal, I might add, that had a pits and starts of a of a life for 10 years, the first decade of the century. And I we were doing a piece on the challenge of peace. And I called Germaine Grise, and he was happy to take my call. And we talked about his role in the challenge of peace. Now he was critical of the bishops who were giving an account of deterrence strategy that um, uh, would allow the United States to continue its uh, threat to, to use nuclear weapons if it was fired upon. You know, this was the key issue in. The, uh, well, just uh, full disclosure, I did my master's thesis under Germain and my master's thesis was on the moral unacceptability of the nuclear deterrent. Yeah. So so. Um, just so the uh, listeners know that that was Brzee's view. I knew I liked you for some reason. And, uh, um, but you know what Jermaine told me? I don't know if he ever told you this, Larry. Um, I'm talking to him about this, asking him about, you know, he's he's trying to write all the bishops and and persuade them away from the, the way they were headed after the third 
draft the, the letter was published and or the second draft and uh and he wasn't able to do it mccormick and hollenbeck and those guys won the day and novak so on they yeah, all yeah. agreed on deterrence um but he told me the story of a time when he was at the university of chicago studying philosophy in the 50s right am i right about yes this? yes and, in the 50s. Uh, and he had a student colleague from japan and um the the student colleague told him the story one day that he he lived in nagasaki and he was gone uh he he was gone from home for a few days and returned and his whole family was wiped out wow. and he told this story to Griset and Griset said to me over the phone it was at that point that I started to seriously understand the barbarity of the U.S. and allied bombing policies at the end of World War II. Yes. Um, so those things go deep and uh, again, I would say that's a natural law argument in the sense that. Well, I was just going to say it's a perfect it's a perfect example of using uh, natural wiped law. Wiped out a whole family, you know, and yeah. uh, and yeah. so and so uh, this is why Ben and I I think we agree uh, that we're uh, we we're not entirely one hundred percent behind the pacifists who want to just get rid of the just war theory. Rather, we want to use it. Not to justify wars, we all know that's been done, and George has been a great um, um, uh, offender of that uh, during the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War and everything else. Um, but to use it to resist modern war, um, yeah. Ben and I well, know a guy who was in Iraq, a guy by the name of Camilo Mejia, raised Catholic in some background way from Honduras. Um, but at one point, he talked about his experience in Iraq on patrol when uh, they ran across a guy who they were um, uh, a kid who they thought was somehow an aggressor. And the kid's father came out of the house when he saw his son, 12-year-old son or whatever, surrounded by big guys with guns and the kid's father to demonstrate to the u.s troops that the kid was not a danger started beating the kid and the uh. father started crying as he was doing it but he was trying to persuade the u.s gis not to take his kid down to headquarters to be interrogated he mejia said at that point i knew i was in a moral compromised yeah. position and um now that wasn't a faith statement but it aligns with a faith statement and what it shows is that this capacity he had as a human being to say this is wrong yes just like germain so 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 in other words um i don't think that we should dispense with natural law arguments but rather we should recast them as you guys have been saying theologically yes. 
and then appeal in that way to um, uh, things that we know are true. Like I have yeah. a friend, Father Joe Kapoor at Notre Dame. He goes down to the border every Christmas. He works with Sister Norma in McAllen, Texas. And he comes back and he talks about the family he's met. And he just starts weeping. That's that's who we are. We welcome, like Mark and Louise, we welcome the stranger and and mercy yeah. is without borders. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's not a popular talk these days, but so much the worse for these days. Yeah, I know. It's so much the worse for these days. And that's exactly what I mean when I'm talking about natural law. I don't mean to overly criticize it because I've, I've used it myself. But I do want to go back to the war thing and, and, and George Weigel. I do recall, you know, one of the th one of the things is, you know, all of these things could simply be dispensed. Well, that's the fog of war. We've all, you know, things happen badly in the fog of war. That doesn't, you know, delegitimate the war itself. Well, here's the deal. All right. In, in the pages of first things before the last Iraq war, there was a debate between Paul Griffiths and George Weigel. And Griffiths was against going to war against Iraq and Weigel was for it. And Weigel gave all the standard blah, 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 arguments. All right. Paul Griffiths had one basic argument, and it's this. We can't go to war because we cannot trust that our government is telling us the truth about the reasons for going to war, because our government lies to us and lies to us routinely. And therefore, we have a prima facie case against just about any war that this government might want to launch because our government is a government filled with liars. And it turns out that Paul Griffiths was right. right? We were lied to about that war from top to bottom. <laughs> I said, so, we called a sectarian for making that argument. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> you sectarian rigorist, you. Yeah, Jean Bethke Elstein, for example. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we're talking about <coughs> war, you know, we're. we're we're one old guy and two middle-aged guys. And, uh, or maybe you're an old guy too, Larry, Larry I guess. I'm, I'm 65. So I'm old. Yeah. And so am I. Ben's he's not, he's, he's my wife's age. So, so he's still young. Um, but, uh, the thing, the, the, one of the tasks I think that we need to do, I think we, we're finding, we all agree, basically agree with each other is to recast these arguments for this day and age, this year, 2024. And um, because I think what we're going to see, we've already seen it, but we're, we're going to see more this year is a call, a, a kind of a new call for civility. Did John Courtney Murray in the pl present political context is going to come into greater prominence because after 2024, people are going to say we need civility. And what I think that we need to do and what I get the thing I try to do some of my more recent stuff is to show the continuity between the Murray tradition, as we're talking about it, of the 80s, 90s, 2000s and so on, and the post 2016 fractured political context where you've got radical or so-called progressive Democrats 
and mainstream Democrats fighting against each other. And you've got the neocons and now you've got the natcons, the national conservatives. Yeah. And what I would argue, what I would argue is that at least three of those four groups fit within Murray's mentality. I don't know about the radical progressives. Uh, I don't think Murray would ever have countenanced any sort of justification for abortion and so on and so forth. But um, uh, what we need to see, because people think that there is a break, there's been a sharp break with the past starting in 2016. And I think that there was a shift, but it's not going to be a break. And that the Catholic community will once again be co-opted into the political culture in a further way and uh, just find more reasons to set aside the call to discipleship and instead try to reform the culture now. Um, and it was, a, I think, a rather fruitless task 30 years ago, and I think it's going to remain fruitless now. Um, but yeah. the way that we work, it's it's kind of a satire in the sense that we we're like in a farcical god are we ever uh, i mean we all these catholics voting for trump to drain the swamp when trump is one of the biggest swamp creatures you could possibly ever want to find yeah well, I, I i wish that there were where are the never trumpers um i i guess they're going to start coming coming and I, out yeah and i'm not a fan of joe biden or the democrats either so i see you know your point is is so well taken wait ben go ahead I was going to say a, 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 a few years ago, Patrick Patrick De, De Neen had an article and, and he was kind of trying to lay some of this out. And he, he, he used the metaphor of marriage. And he was saying that, you know, that, that the kind of Murray crowd is still saying that this marriage between Catholics in America can kind of last. But then there's also this other crowd that was calling for 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 a divorce between Catholicism and, and, and the U.S. And, and yeah, I think he was seeing himself more in that camp in the the kind of constitutional con or the, the the common good conservative uh, constitutionalism and but but when I'm Mike and I talking and 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 he gave me this great point he's like but but then there's the annulment argument and 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 that would be a kind of day that like it's never and, been a we're going to kind of get back to the kind of Catholic worker radicalist what's oftentimes dismissed as sectarian is that there never was a marriage that, that there wasn't there isn't there 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 wasn't this break like Mike's talking about. It's always been the case that this has been a relationship where you either succumbed to the to the broader American culture or you resisted it. And if you resisted it, Murray gave reasons for why you were you should be ignored and dismissed and you were seen as marginal like Dorothy was for so long. And I think I think that idea of, of thinking about is this is this a break? Or is this something that was never there? And, and you know, and I think the idea of 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 making the annulment argument for the relationship between Catholics and 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 the U.S. at least in my mind has been helpful in kind of charting this because because now you're getting some people like the Patrick the the Neen crowd kind of saying, yeah, I am critical of, of where uh, America's going, but it used to be better. There's kind of a an argument for nostalgia kind of going back to a time when it used to all work. And I think Dorothy would say there's never been a time where it all worked kind of a thing. Oh yeah. I mean the good old days of what before the good old days when if you agitated for a labor union, that meant you were a communist, the good old days where blacks were treated, I mean, lynched 
and uh, you know, segregated. Back and so porch, this is the back porch republic that he kind of talks about, right? It's that sense of yeah. Well, the good old days were not so good for a lot of people uh, in this country. And it's really important as we advance these critiques, I think, it, given the, especially the Catholic worker context and the way it's perceived, to, to go back and to acknowledge the re-narrating that we're called to, I would argue, that we're called to engage, yes. um, particularly uh, when it comes to slavery and when it comes to the abuse of worker immigrants uh, in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, um, uh, so that people don't see us as, oh, just the latest version of a kind of wacky conservatism. Um, it's very hard, these crushing polarities that we're living under, it's very hard to carve out a space that is free of these kind of um, uh, dynamics uh, of um, uh, oppositional dynamics, but um, young people, we should be hopeful. Like, like it when they see it. They do, and that the, the, like the key is that in, in, in trying to avoid the op I like the way you put it, Michael. Uh, oppositional dynamics. In trying to avoid that, what is key is that we don't then adopt the point of view that, well, then the truth is somehow in, in the middle. Uh, I, I think that's an equally facile response yeah. to things. Uh, that well, the, way, the way forward is deeper. Yes. This is what Peter Morin said. Uh, we got to go back and get deeper, go down to the roots. And uh, like Peter Morin has a great essay. I'm sure you, you, you've read Larry and thought about it a lot where he says, um, you know, it's kind of like we hit a dead end with modernity and we got to go back and we got to figure out where we made the wrong turn. Not that, you know, that you can simply go back, but that we can, uh, in a resourcement spirit, yeah. um, reclaim a lot of texts and a lot of figures and a lot of thoughts, books that, um, say something new again, in Peter Moran's words, a philosophy that's so old that it looks like new. And uh, I think young people are happy to be relieved of these false choices that they think they have to make between, you know, let's say, you know, a culture of death and a wacky president like Trump or, or something like that. And, and, yeah. uh, uh, and they, and they know it when they see it and they want to go be a part of it. That's why when it comes to the Catholic worker, I'm very hopeful of the future because I do see young people still, as I was, I guess, attracted to you uh, what you could call the real thing. The, yeah, I, I'll never forget the first time I stepped into a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving morning and saw 25 people putting together a meal and homeless guys uh uh sitting at the tables and i just looked at this scene and i thought this is it i was a seminarian yeah. at the time and i said this is it and i feel like this uh, this still can happen this still happens still you going know, the turning that you know that's interesting the turning point in my life i'll get a bit autobiographical in 1982 i was a young seminarian 
I think I was in second theology. I spent time in the Dominican Republic learning Spanish. And while there, I, I contracted a skin rash of some kind from at the beach, Playa Sasua, I do believe. I sat on a log or something with and it, it quickly took over my body. I thought I was going to have to declare myself as a plant in customs uh, when I went back through because it was just spores and weirdness. So I walk into this uh, clinic and uh, and there was a young girl sitting there and she was covered head to toe in some kind of sore and she was carrying holding this baby and, and she was just wearing rags and the baby was wearing rags. And I walk in, I was nicely dressed. I obviously had a rash or whatever, but I was nicely dressed and, you know, and uh, there were no other chairs in the room. And this, and this young woman stood up and she said, por favor, senor. And she pointed for me to sit down. And uh, I said, no, no, that's okay. It's okay. Um, but that, that was the turning point for me in my life. I, I thought to myself, this is it, right? This was not some strange deference to a white man, a gringo, you know, maybe he'll give me money. You know, this was, this was just a genuine act of charity on the part of a very, very poor young woman uh, with her child. And I just, uh, that, that moment right there changed my life in 1982. Right out of Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, actually. Yeah. It's the story of the mysterious visitor, right? Uh, or no, it's great about Alyosha. Um, yeah, 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 I think yeah. it's, yeah, yeah, from Alyosha in the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, that, that was a turning point for me. You know, the, it, it was a turning point where I was convicted in my conscience of what an arrogant little piece of crap I was. You know, uh, my concerns were all theological and blah, 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 and, you know, orthodoxy and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, oh, geez, what a little turd I was. Uh, I must have been an insufferable little turd. And, uh, you know, I look back now and realize, oh, my God, I, why I had any friends at all is beyond me. My regime has been more um, of the last few years in marriage where I've <laughs> where I've learned what a turd I am. Um, <laughs> this is one of the great gifts of marriage is you have someone to tell you to shut the hell up. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, well, my I, wife has my wife Carrie has a PhD in theology too. We have some interesting conversations. I, I'm well aware of that. I'm sure you guys must have drive yourselves crazy all the time. Um, well, I, I don't know how she lives with me though, quite frankly, because I'm a I'm I'm a load. But anyway, um, are we done? I guess we're kind of yeah. I I, I, I sense <laughs> I the company. I yeah, we got I got we got so much more to talk about. But um, we well, can talk one, about one of the what, what, later. Yeah, we can talk in the future. I want to talk about well before we get out of here. I mean, unless you want to really run, let, let's. But I just want, I want to set up maybe the next time we can talk about Catholic worker next time. But looming in the background in this whole conversation we're having today, as we as we think of ourselves outside of the categories of these binary oppositions and so forth, one of the political categories that gets thrown around all over the place now is post liberal, uh, post liberalism. And I'm not certain that I am a post-liberal. I it's mean, I misused. It's being misused by the uh, the integralists, the national conservatives. Uh, I think I, I think they want to say um, in post-liberal, we want to get beyond the neocon and beyond the uh, kind of democratic party's approach to politics. 
so that we're going to um, uh, uh, put forth a, a kind of a more uh, upfront uh, nationalist America first, Pat Buchanan, I guess you could go back to um, Edmund Burke type approach to politics and, um, and, you know, and looking therefore as a form of Burkean conservatism. That's how I look at how the post-liberals are defining themselves. And who I mean is Patrick Deneen, who's a friend of mine, um, uh, Adrian Vermeule at, at Harvard, Harvard. Um, Ch Chad Pecknold at Catholic U, and you know some of these other, and then some of the politicians, J.D. Vance and these folks, um, they're considering themselves post-liberal. But I, I think it's a misuse of the term uh, because the way I define it, it was defined already by um, George Lindbeck back in the early 80s with his book, The Nature of Doctrine. Yeah. And there, um, uh, uh, post-liberal meant people that didn't want to have theology adapted to the conditions of modernity, but rather saw theology as a kind of challenge to a lot of the uh, forces that were unleashed with modernity. So post-liberal now has at least two meanings, and um, uh, it's a mistake to align, say, Patrick Deneen with someone like Stanley Hauerwas. Um, right. They're, they're just not uh, the same character or or, or even um, uh, uh, Patrick Deneen with uh, someone like McIntyre. I mean, McIntyre's too Marxist in his uh, uh, formative years to be and too Irish, actually, to become anything like a Burkean conservative. Well, yeah, it's, it's, this is what struck me, too, in thinking about all this post-liberal stuff, is that it strikes me as largely just paleoconservative uh, in that in that Burkean sense. Uh, OK, fine. That, that's what you think. But I don't see what's particularly unique about it or post anything about it, uh, unless you want to say it's a chastened Burkeanism or it's a Burkeanism that's gone through the gauntlet of liberalism that's somehow higher and transformed. I, I think I think there's something to that. I, I think there's another way to look at it, too. And I think Deneen put me onto this uh, or an essay. It was an essay on de Tocqueville. Um, but one way to look at it is is that a lot of American political thinkers um, take as their kind of governing paradigm the, either the sociology of Alexis de Tocqueville or the sociology of Max Weber. And if if you want to, um, uh, if you're a post-liberal in the current uh, sense, the Patrick Deneen sense, you want to take de Tocqueville's arguments as crucial. And you find an America that fits the kind of small self-governing communities, you know, dotting the Midwest, all the flyover states and so on and so forth that, you know, we can get back to the land and have one foot in the land, like Chesterton said. And uh, this is the kind of America we want, almost like a Jeffersonian vision of America, not his thinking, but his preference for small agrarian communities. Um, but I tend to be a Weberian in terms of like, uh, our sociological situation. That is to say, we're being overrun 
by bureaucracy of various forms. Uh, and the key, the key text here is uh, obviously Weber's writings and then the managerial um, uh, revolution by uh, James Burnham, uh, where, you know, as a recovering Trotskyist, he says, what we have to deal with is just the growing bureaucracy. And it's against the growing behemoth of bureaucracy in the 20th century in all forms like communism and Western <clears throat> democracy um, that- um, Ivan that Illich McIntyre, wrote about this too. Yeah, McIntyre wrote uh, After Virtue as a critique of those varying forms of bureaucratization. Um, After Virtue is written not just as a critique of Nietzsche, but of Weber and the kind of Weberian worldview that says, you know, in modernity, you just have to deal with bureaucracy if you want to get anything done. And I think we want to say, no, actually, you can do things that don't look like much, but actually, in the eschatological light of Christ, they will come out as world of world historical significance, even if it's something as silly as putting a uh, using a ladle to uh, put some soup in a guy's bowl. Well, and 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 I and I think too. I, I think this use of de, de Tocqueville kind of goes back to what I was saying with the with the marriage analogy. It's still a kind of a nostalgia for that there was a time when this worked. There was a time when you could when Catholicism and whether it's the broader culture or in in in, in, in you know modernity America whatever it is that they're sort of trying to bring together that there's this kind of looking back at there was a moment, you know, that, that there, there was the famous kind of like the 13th century was the golden century, like, like that, 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 that was the time when it all clicked. Or I, I, I think here with, with, with guys like Deneen De and, and, and Vermeule, that there was this other moment of small town and uh, agrarian where that's when it could, and if we could get back to that, we can heal this marriage in some way. And I think that's where, the kind of um, critique that you get certainly from McIntyre, but again, to get back to kind of Dorothy and, and, you know, really questioning, even like you did, Larry, like, well, what was going on in those, in, in those days of nostalgia that we're yearning for? Yeah. Were really, were things really clicking like we think they are? Yeah. Yeah. And that there, there was a certain, I think in some ways, the nostalgia that we have is the remembrance of the fact that people used to believe in shit and now we don't believe in shit. And so what they're seeking is to develop a kind of second naivete about all of that stuff. But, but I think our, one of our points, I think that we're all making here is a second naivete is only possible in, in a revolution of the heart in, in faith, in, 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 in a sense, a, a rejuvenation of the Christian evangel that a contrived ad hoc second naivete um, it's not going to work. It's, 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 it's just part, still part of the, of the, of the dynamic of despair that we see pervading our culture, like a gas, uh, everywhere. But anyway, that's just my thought. Any, 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 go ahead, Michael. Yeah. What maybe one last thought or whatever is this, is that one way to, to look at Murray and to go back to where we started and his successors is um, 
Murray wanted us to enter into a great drama. And the drama was re retrieving America, helping America recover its roots in the kind of um, natural law, common sense, uh, identity as a, as a people. Um, and, uh, and for him, that was, that was the drama in which we were all supposed to enter yeah. into. The nation is in crisis and it's bewildered and Catholics have what it, what it can supply to America. You know, we see this, not just, we see this both in Joe Biden's inauguration day where he goes to mass before he goes and we see it at the gatherings of the Napa Institute every summer. Um, and, uh, but Dorothy Day, and this is where I commend your work, Larry, is wants to say, no, the drama is really the drama of following Christ and striving after eternal life. And, yeah. and that's the great drama. And that these, these are two deeply different and oftentimes conflicting dramas. And uh, what we want to do is um, put forth the Balthasarian conception of the real drama of our lives and to uh, put in its place or put to the side um, the drama of reclaiming America's founding roots and founding vision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and I'll, I'll just end with this, you know, with regard to that whole debate, you know, are, are America's roots flawed from the beginning or were they good and then later got derailed in this Catholic sense? Part of me just doesn't even care. Part of me says we are where we are. OK, and we got here for some reason. Now, where do we go? It's kind of to me like the whole nature and grace debate. But what was Aquinas's view on the relationship between nature and grace? Well, that's an interesting thing. He's an important part of the tradition. Nevertheless, since Aquinas could be wrong, I really don't care what Aquinas thought. At the very best, apparently, he was ambiguous. The deeper question is, what's the truth of the matter? What is the proper theology of nature and grace, regardless of what Aquinas may or may not have thought? And I feel the same way about the American founding. What did Madison think? What did Jefferson think? At this point, I don't care. I don't care. What I care about is the guy in that soup kitchen line. What I care about is my neighbor down the street. That's what I care about. Well, I, I would just say I would care about it in just the McIntyrean sense that if there's a, I think of my friends like Rick Garnett, you know, I just read about him today. Um, I want to go learn about the American founding because that's kind of like a second language that we have yeah. to show to those who speak that as their first language, that that language is not working. Um, and so it would be uh, kind of like out of charity and love for my brothers and sisters um, that I would want to get into all that stuff. But I agree with yeah. you where my heart is, is on the line with. Um, yeah, and that's the point I'm making. Obviously, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. what Thomas did or did not think is obviously important and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, truth is more important. And uh, anyway, I think we've gone on quite long enough. Ben, do you have any last words before? Because Mike and I have done all the talking. So no, I, I got enough last time. Just 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 on, on Aquinas. One of my one of my old professors at, at, at Notre Dame used to say, I, I'm not so much interested in what Aquinas said as what what Aquinas thought. Like, like I'm kind of I'm kind of. I'm interested in what Aquinas was interested more than what Aquinas wrote and thought. And that was 
that that was a Mike Baxter line. I, I, that's I, very that's very interesting. What was the line? What wasn't it like? I I I'm not so much interested. I'm I'm gonna botch up this oh. this whole podcast now with me misquoting you. But no, that, that I'm not so much interested in what Aquinas wrote. I'm interested in what Aquinas was interested in, and that's the beatific vision or something like that. Something like yeah, that. yeah, and it's true about what Dorothy wrote too. It the key the key to uh, capturing part of Dorothy is not just to be interested in Dorothy Day, but to be interested in what Dorothy Day was interested. In. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, let that be the, the last word here today, because we will have a part two of this podcast and we're going to dive, I think, more deeply into only two, only two. Oh, uh, three or four or five. This might be an ongoing series, but I really want to dig into the Catholic worker movement and and what it's what it's all about and, and the way forward. And we'll, we'll we'll deal with that in our in our next session. But I want to thank my two guests today. What a great conversation. Uh, ben Peters and and Mike Baxter. Uh, and so and thank you, everybody, for joining us. And uh, until next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye bye.